you like to open up your Bibles to the place where we'll be studying today, we're going to be in Isaiah 42 to begin with, and then we're going to make our way into the New Testament as we progress through this passage and as we see the connection between the Old Testament signpost and the New Testament fulfillment. Our ushers will be bringing around Bibles and uh, note sheets and pencils, so if any of those things are helpful to you, then go ahead and receive those. And we pray that it will help you as we study the Word together. So great to see our brother back on his feet, and uh, thank you for praying for the Abedas and for our other families uh, that have been going through much right now. It's been a really strange season of struggles and difficulties and hardships and trials, but I want to remind you, church, don't be discouraged. You have the Holy Spirit. And a gathering of people who have the Holy Spirit, they might be lame, they might be blind, they might be sick, but they are dangerous to a world that loves sin. So don't forget that the Holy Spirit that is indwelling in us, that is our seal and our comfort, our promise of future hope and relief is also right now our strength in the moment. This is the thing that we rely on to get through whatever struggles and trials that we have to endure as a church. So praise God for giving us this helper that we need so much. And praise God that this Spirit dwells with those who trust in the Son. So this series that we're going through right now here leading up into Christmas has to do with those signposts in the Old Testament that point forward to the Messiah. Why is it so important to read the Bible as one large story? Why do we need to recognize the new covenant as the fulfillment of every graceful promise that is put forth to us through the words of the prophets in the Old Covenant. We need to do this because history, friends, is very, very important. Just recently, uh, you might have heard a lot of buzz in the last couple of years about something called the 1619 Project. The 1619 Project started uh, by a lady named Nicole Hannah-Jones who worked for the New York Times. It was an intentional effort to restructure the way that people think about the history of this nation the, the desire and the, the, old, the goal of the 1619 Project is to reorient our whole understanding of the nation of, of, of America as having been built on the back of chattel slavery. And while we need to, as a people, be aware of the things that we have done wrong in the history of our nation, and while it is just as foolish to pretend like wicked things did not happen in our nation, to go back and to try to rewrite history so that that is the main focus and the axes around which the good things of our nation were built is, is not honest. It is not forthright. And uh, this, this effort, the 1619 Project, has also been tried to be put into schools so that our children would grow up not knowing the good things about where our nature, uh, nation came from and how it was built on principles, many of which came from the Word of God. So knowing history is important. Knowing the good Knowing the bad, recognizing where we come from will help us to understand why we are where we are at today. This is even relevant as we think about Christmas, a holiday with definite Christian roots as we think about the way that it is even celebrated today. We have Jesus in storefront windows. We have carols on the radio that people are listening to today that speak and proclaim of the name of Christ and call him king and call him Emmanuel, God with us. But anytime you take things that are holy and sacred and you allow them to be mingled with largely secular traditions, there is the risk of losing track of what Christmas really should mean to the, the Christian. And so we want to be 
very careful about our understanding of the past, that we know where we came from, and we know how God has set things up in such a way that the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old. When we take these prophetic messages about Christ to heart, it's going to bring clarity to our understanding of the whole story of the Bible being communicated throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, but also being communicated throughout all history, which is God's story to tell. We're going to come to appreciate the cohesion between the Old and the New Testaments. We won't look at these two elements of God's one book as being at odds with each other or contradictory to one another. When we see how God provided important signposts to develop our understanding of the Savior to come, we will not so easily fall into the trap of thinking that the Old Testament is obsolete or that it presents a picture of God that is no longer relevant or that God himself has somehow evolved and moved on from his Old Testament roots. We don't want to fall into that error. So studying these Old Testament connections to the new help us to have a cohesive view of how these two Testaments work together. And then we'll begin to see that there's a continuity of God's covenant plans from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, spanning across all of history. And though the covenant has changed, God's intention has never wavered. The goals of these covenants has always been brought to bear. God's decree is being accomplished. So understanding that God's plan to redeem His people through Christ were being revealed ever since the Garden of Eden shows us that God has always been accomplishing His plan and will continue to do so through the return of Jesus. The story of the Bible is not failure in the beginning and victory at the end. It is always victory in the Lord God, for His plans are always good. And thirdly, we will grow in confidence that the sovereign power of God is directing all things throughout history to accomplish His decree. The one who directs history itself is the one who promises that all who are in Christ Jesus are safe from the consequences of sin. If God is for the believer, then who can be against the believer, this God who is mighty and can do all things, this God against whom no one can stand and live. And so this week, we're going to examine one of the earlier signposts of the preview uh, that previewed the coming of the king. Our prophecy this morning comes from Numbers 24. In Numbers 21, a little bit before this signpost is unveiled, the Israelites are in a period of wandering and refinement. Because they've initially refused to believe that God could give them the victory in the Holy Land that He promised to provide for them. God had said, I'm making you a people for myself. You have been a people since Abraham, and I have a place prepared for you. And I'm going to bring you into this place that is flowing with milk and honey, a place of promise and blessing and fertility. And yet the spies who went into the land to look at the land before the nations crossed the Jordan and entered in to take it as their own possession came back trembling. And most of them were not confident that God could use this humble people, the Israelites, to defeat the inhabitants of Canaan. And so because of that, the nation of Israel wandered. And they did so for a whole generation. During that time of wandering, as that unfaithful generation slowly passed away and their children replaced them, we still hear grumbling on part of the Israelites, complaining and worrying despite the fact that God had set them free from the oppression that they had experienced in Egypt, despite the fact that God had provided for their needs through the miraculous gift of manna, this holy bread from heaven, and by giving them water in the midst of an arid, dry desert, they still found reason to complain and contend against God. And so in order to refine their hearts, God sends a plague 
of fiery serpents among them. I think I told you to turn to Isaiah earlier. I meant to say turn to Numbers. Numbers 20, uh, 24 is where we're going to be this morning. These fiery serpents were uh, aggressive. They bit the people of Israel and their sting was fiery. It hurt them and they cried out to the Lord God. They needed relief from this plague. This plague that they had earned with their grumbling and complaining. This plague that they could not bear on their own. And so in chapter 21 of Numbers, just giving you a little historical context here, God tells Moses to craft a serpent, a bronze serpent, and to fix it to a pole and to lift that serpent up into the air, which might seem to be a very strange thing for God to tell his prophet Moses to do. And yet Moses obeys. And this serpent, this symbol of sin that is lifted up in the air on a pole, if the people were to look upon this, if they were to gaze upon that sin and trust in the relief that God could bring, they would be healed from the sting of the bites from these fiery serpents. And many were spared and saved because of that obedience that Moses followed and because of that bronze serpent. What does that bronze serpent point forward to? It points forward not to Satan, as my son shouted out from the front row, pointed forward to Jesus himself. And that might seem strange because Satan's the serpent, right? But what does Jesus do to spare us from the sting of sin? He becomes sin. He takes our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus takes upon the sins of the world, though he was pure and spotless, though he had never sinned. He took the shame of our sin and its guilt upon himself so that when he went and died on the cross at Calvary, that our very sins might be punished faithfully so that justice may be done and yet we might be spared. Like that bronze serpent, Jesus was lifted up in the air and all who gaze upon him in faith will see their sins conquered. The Israelites continued through the wilderness, defending themselves with God's help along the way from pagan people in the area who often threatened them with war, who wanted their resources, who, or who saw them as a threat. One of those very people were the Moabites. These Moabites were not honoring Yahweh, the true God. They had rejected Him. And they were very concerned that this strange people who had came seemingly out of nowhere from Egypt were wandering through the land, and were being shown strange favor by their God. And, and so they sought to conquer the Israelites. They didn't want them to be a threat to their, their possessions. The king of Moab, a man named Balak, reached out to Balaam, who was known in that area to be a great prophet, and requested that he curse the Israelites who were taking over the land. Now there's much to Balaam's story, and we can't cover every detail this morning, but by way of fortifying our understanding of histories that we'll see where Numbers 24, 17 brings us. I want to talk just briefly about Balaam. The element you probably remember most of the story of Balaam is not Balaam, but the donkey he rode upon, right? This stubborn animal actually saves Balaam's life at one point by refusing to move forward because the donkey could see what Balaam could not see. God, being unhappy with Balaam, had positioned an angel with a fiery sword in front of uh, his path. And if that donkey would have continued on, Balaam would have been slain. But the donkey refuses to move forward. Even more remarkably, when Balaam could not understand why his beast would not move, he punished the animal 
he, he beat the animal until God made that donkey speak and bring a word of prophecy through to Balaam. If God could speak through a beast, he could speak through anyone, which is a good thing for a dummy like me to remember as he has called me into ministry. If God can speak through a beast, he can speak through anyone. And that last statement is immediately proved in Numbers. For one important detail about Balaam is this. He was not a believer in Yahweh. Balaam was not an Israelite. He was not a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos. Balaam was a secular prophet. He was a prophet of a false god. While he had great fame, he was not a prophet of the truth. His name literally means one who swallows up the people or a man of curses. So King Balak commissions this man to live up to his name. He had heard about uh, the possibility that this man, Balaam, uh, could bring curses upon people. And so he says, I want you to curse these Israelites because we're about to go into battle against them. And I've heard that they might have some spiritual help. So I better get some spiritual help of my own. God had already revealed himself to Balaam through a vision, making it clear that Balaam must not comply with Balak's request. So this is very interesting. While Balaam was a wicked prophet, not a prophet of God, God uses the man. We see that he's not a good prophet when we look to references of Balaam in the New Testament. First P, or 2 Peter 2.15 and Revelation 2.14, as well as the book of Jude, all testify to the fact that Balaam was not an example to follow. And yet God used this secular man for his purposes. He shows Balaam in a vision, a true vision, that he must not curse Israel. Balaam is fearful enough of this word that he receives from Yahweh, the true God, that he tells the king, Balak, that he will only be able to prophesy what God tells him to prophesy. He cannot guarantee that God will allow him to curse. And yet Balaam is very interested in the financial blessing that might come from Balak. And so he refuses to turn away entirely. He allows himself to be brought from place to place where Balak says, try to curse the people from here. Try to curse them from here. Try to curse them from here. The king is hoping that eventually the Lord will relent and allow Balaam to curse these people. But instead, God uses these opportunities to issue blessing through Balaam to his people Israel. Understand this, the events that occurred in the false prophet Balaam's life were absolutely relevant to what God was doing for his covenant people at the time. But God's covenant people were more than just the Hebrews who walked through the desert in that day and age. There were many more people who belonged to Yahweh by covenant who simply had not yet been born. And Yahweh had a message for them as well, including people like you if you trust in Jesus today. God, by way of this pagan prophet, not only administers a blessing to the Israelites in the wilderness, but he also chooses to establish an expectation for an even greater gift that God would eventually provide, redemption for his people. And that would happen through the gift of the Savior, God's Son. And so in Numbers 24, now that we have a little bit of background and we're not just jumping into the text blind, in Numbers 24, we read in verse 17, this is a prophecy that God brings to the people through Balaam, this unlikely source. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Would you bow with me for a moment as we pray and thank the Lord God for this word and the, the other scriptures that he will use to grow us up this morning. Almighty God, we are thankful for the word. It is our faithful testimony of what you desire for us, and we would be fools to turn our back upon it or to think that we need to seek truth outside of its pages, Lord. Father, you are a holy God and you are good and you have always taken care of those who belong to you. And so we are grateful that even way back then in Balaam's time that you were giving us a peek of how you would redeem your people and that you would do it through one who was mighty. And we praise you for that mighty one, for Jesus today. And we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would give us a greater love and appreciation, a greater confidence in him, by what we learn in your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Balaam sees an individual in the vision that God gives to him. And the figure that he sees is none other than Jesus, the promised Messiah. As we will see, there's plenty of evidence in the text to show us that that is the case. But before we consider the identity and the character of the person that Balaam prophesies about, there are two clauses that give us clues that the individual that he's speaking of is not a man who's going to come in that moment, but is a man who is to come later. First, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. He is referencing a vision that points to the future. The river crossing at Jordan that happened around 1407 B.C. Uh, would, would occur shortly after this time. And that's long before Jesus was born to a virgin mother. So he's telling us something relevant, but it is not relevant to the moment. It is relevant to the greater story of redemption that God wants his people to be aware of. Secondly, he says, I behold him, but not near. A place far away from the place that Balaam receives his vision is the place where this man will manifest. The Savior, of course, would be born on the other side of the Jordan River, very close to the city of Jerusalem in a town called Bethlehem. After giving clear indication that the prophecy was beginning to address something that was not immediately applicable to the Israelites in that moment, God's vision to Balaam then reveals some details about a special figure that enters into the story. There are two details that tell us much about this individual and that help us to get an idea of what we are looking forward to from the perspective of the Israelites who received this prophecy. He says that this one will come as a scepter. Now, a scepter is a signpost pointing towards the leadership and the rule that this individual will express over his people. A scepter is the ornamental symbol of power that is often wielded by a king. Uh, you don't really see people walking around with scepters today, do you, unless they're wearing a costume? Uh, but when you look at ancient texts or pictures or renderings of kings, they often had some kind of a staff that signified their ability to express power through the armies that they directed. The man that Balaam points forward to is one who will come with authority. He is one who will establish a rule in the land. So let's not gaze over, glaze over this fact, church. Many in the modern era would really prefer to edit out the, that aspect of Christ's ministry. They would prefer to think of Jesus in terms of being their friend, as being their savior, but not really as being a king over them, not really being any kind of Lord in their life. 
The mercy of God and the great forgiveness that is ours through the shed blood of Jesus Christ is an incredible gift, friends. One that displays immeasurable mercy and generosity of God who would allow his very blood to be shed in order to spare the souls of even his enemies. What does God save people into, though? What does he bring them out of? He brings them out of sin. What does he bring them into? Does he save them into a consequence-free version of that same state of rebellion? Does he just erase the things that will come as a result of their sin and just allow them to continue in sin? No, he saves these people into a kingdom. And he sits on the throne of that kingdom. He saves us into a distinct group of people united in a common faith and bound together with God, with God himself by the terms of an unbreakable covenant. And so if God has saved you, he has saved you to a particular type of freedom, not just any and all freedom, but to a righteous freedom. He has not saved you so that you can make the world into whatever you want it to be. He has saved you into the world that he is rebuilding according to his own personal will. And it is a good world. It is a world that is not marked by chaos and disorder and disruption. It is a world free of sin. It is a world of love and harmony. And it is a world that he will protect and govern. Man doesn't naturally like to be governed. And so the picture of baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger is perhaps the most easy notion of Jesus to swallow for a generation that values freedom above all else. They would just assume Jesus stay that sentimental little child in the manger. They don't think about the fact that God brought that little one to earth so that he might grow, so that he might take his place in history as the one conquering king who rules and who oversees the nation that God is building for himself. How could such little hands even hold a scepter? How could such a vulnerable ass, uh, little uh, child assert his will upon all of creation? In reality, that little one is the eternal king of the universe. And by his power, not only will a people be saved out of sin, but those who do not trust in him and bow to the king will also have their rebellion one day put down by that same Jesus. And so we rejoice in the advent of Christ but we also recognize that there is a second advent, that Christ will return victorious and triumphant, and that he will once and for all crush under his foot the head of the serpent. He will once and for all rid his creation of every trace of the sin that still stains it. Man doesn't naturally like to be governed, but this Jesus that we worship at Christmas and throughout the world is not just a baby in a manger. He is a king, and he wields a scepter of power. Now, this is the opposite problem. Our, our generation's tendency to, to push to the side the kingship of Jesus and to just make him some kind of nice, benevolent savior who then leaves the scene and lets us do whatever we want. The opposite problem existed for the Israelites in Jesus' day. They preferred to overemphasize the kingly rule of the Messiah. And when Jesus did not establish his reign in an outwardly political way, they doubted that he really could be the Messiah, the seed of David that the Old Testament signposts were pointing to. 
And so we must guard ourselves from thinking of only half of Jesus, whether it be the half of Jesus that is merciful and graceful and kind, or whether it be the half of Jesus that is powerful and rules and exerts his will in all kind. There is no halves. There is only Christ. He is mighty and he is graceful at the same time. And so the scepter clearly points to the authority of the one to come. And Balaam is not the only one to use this symbol in speaking of the Messiah. Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes who lived much before the day of Balaam, before he died, he delivers a blessing of his own to his 12 sons. And in the midst of doing so, he plants another signpost in the ground, pointing forward to this mighty king, directing his blessings toward his son Judah. Jacob says in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And so here we see, even in Genesis 49, a subtle foreshadowing of the fact that God would bring through the tribe of Judah one who would rule as David would one day rule, but to an even greater degree and with an even greater perfection. For the scepter would never depart from Jesus. The Son of God reigns on high today, and no one will ever displace him from his throne. And quickly the day does approach when that king will bring final definitive judgment upon the creation, will establish a new heavens and a new earth, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. To him shall be the obedience of all peoples, as we see in Romans 14 and Philippians 2. The Messiah is to be a king. The Messiah is to come from Israel, from Jacob. Balaam's prophecy comes to us long before Saul, long before David or Solomon. And so I have no doubt that some saw the anointing of Saul by Samuel as the first king over Israel as perhaps the fulfillment of this prophecy here made by Balaam in the book of Numbers. Some could have seen this prophecy as pointing towards that earthly manifestation of God's power where the people of Israel would no longer be a theocracy but, but would be led by an earthly king sitting on an earthly throne. But we must consider only half of what Balaam tells us about this future figure could even remotely apply to Saul or to David or to Solomon or to any king who sat on the throne because he doesn't just talk about the scepter that this one will wield. He also says that this one will be a star a signpost pointing towards the divinity of this one to come. So when we think of this, this wording in Numbers 24, 17, that this star will come, we're not talking about like an all-star like we think of today, not one of humanity that is just a better form of what we already have. Balaam speaks here of a king who would function as a divine light sent by God to do what man in his fallen state could never do. As we will see, this heavenly light manifests itself in a, in a physical way that this, this light in the heavens shows that the light of, of God has come in Christ when we read in the book of Matthew in just a few moments. The star will come not just out of the sky, but out of Jacob, indicating that we're learning about not just a, a sign in the heavens, but about a person, not just a natural phenomenon, but an individual in history. Our minds might be drawn to the Words that Jesus spoke in John chapter 8 concerning himself. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. Consistently throughout Scripture, light is the equivalent of what is good and godly. Darkness, on the other hand, carries the symbolic representation of the obscuring of what is good. It is deception. It is corruption. It is blindness. And so Jesus is the light that dispels the confusing darkness. But Jesus is not just a light to help us see what is true. He is the light itself. He is the truth. And so His glory and holiness act as a beacon to guide people to Himself. This is the dividing line that helps us to understand that the figure spoken of prophetically through Balaam or Balaam is more than a mere earthly king. This one to come would be the light of divinity in a world that had rebelled against the authority of God. And Jesus confesses this of himself also in the book of Revelation. In Revelation twenty two sixteen 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, referring back to another prophecy that talked about how this one to come would spring like life out of what appears to be death, a stump that seemed like a dead tree, but, but God would bring life from it again. But then he says, he is also the bright and morning star. And this is the more relevant aspect of that prophecy in, in Revelation twenty two sixteen to the passage that we're looking to today. Jesus refers to himself as that star, the star mentioned in Numbers 24. And it is the appearance of an unusual star-like light that alerted some of the arrival of this prophesied king in the land. In Numbers 24, it was not yet time for this anointed one to appear when Balaam spoke of him in Numbers, but the hand of God was faithful to direct history in such a way that when the fullness of time had come, this special king would indeed appear upon the earth. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. We will now let the scriptures connect the dots for us. We will see this continuation, this cohesion in, 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 this, uh, in the two aspects of God's scripture. And our confidence will increase. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I will read through verse 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Who were these men? Wise men from the East, we are told. Men of particular learning and study. The fact that they came from the East could point to a number of different locations. Perhaps they came from the region of Arabia and the various groups of people there. Perhaps they were part of the Persian Empire. Maybe they tied their roots to the Babylonians who lived in the East. Typically, references to the East carry the connotations of being farther from God. When we read in the scripture of someone going to the East, they are typically going away from the presence of God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were banished. And they were banished to the East. Cain, when he killed his brother Abel, is exiled to go and live in the Eastern lands. The entrance to the tabernacle and later the temple was always to point eastward. For when somebody was to move towards the west, as you would have to do to enter into an eastward door, you were seen as going towards the presence of Almighty God. And so we might see these ones in the east as somehow moving towards the presence of God as they sought out this prophesied child who was born. These were not lands that belonged to the nation of Israel by covenant, And so given where they came from, it is very possible, and I would say probable, that these travelers were not Jews, but were Gentiles. In fact, Matthew never mentions in his account that these men were of Jewish stock. So you might ask yourself, well, if these are Gentiles, what's the angle? Why are they even involved with this story at all? What would they care about a prophecy concerning a nation that they weren't even a part of? And how would they have even known about this prophecy in the first place if they are not of the people of the Jews? And these are both valid questions. So let's take some time to answer them. Let's start with the second question first. How could these men have even known about this prophecy in the first place? I think this question would would strengthen the case, in fact, that the possible lands that lay to the east from whence these wise men came, most likely we're talking about Babylon here. Babylon, remember, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah beginning in 605 B.C. And as part of their empirical policy, the Babylonian army would take captives of their defeated nations. They would take captives of them, the very best young students and minds, and they would bring them back to Babylon. Not only would they learn from their cultures and their histories, but then they would take those intelligent young men and they would train them in the ways of the Chaldeans, the wise men of Babylon. And so that happened, and that's where we get the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Belteshazzar, they were brought out of Jerusalem, and they were exiled into Babylon, this eastern land, where they were raised up in the ways of the Chaldeans, but they never forgot where they came from, and their allegiance and loyalty remained with Yahweh, their covenant God. When Jerusalem proved rebellious a few years later, an even greater exile happened, following Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem. Many of the most skilled and knowledgeable Israelites were forced to relocate to Babylon. This was an act done to simultaneously weaken the uprising, but also strengthen the resources that were in Babylon. The Babylonians, of course, cared most about Babylon. They wanted Babylon to be strong. And so this influx of Hebrews brought with it a culture and brought with it an understanding and a knowledge of ancient prophecy. And along with this body of people who were exiled, the Babylonian army also stripped, we learn in Scripture, many resources from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them back as spoils of war. 
The items that we think about most frequently probably are the plates and the cups and the utensils that were famously used by a Babylonian ruler in Daniel chapter 5 in one of his pagan celebrations. But we have no reason to doubt that among the holy items pilfered and returned to Babylon were likely copies of their holy scripture, which would have contained the book of Numbers and this prophecy of a very special king to come. That joined the library of resources that these Chaldeans could study and learn from. Also in favor of a Babylonian origin for our wise men, however many there were, we don't know that there were three or two or however many there were, Scripture doesn't tell us, but the fact that the Babylonians had a well-known class of political advisors, these Chaldeans, who concerned themselves with all kinds of wisdom from various cultures, so long as it might one day be useful to the Babylonian culture, but they also had a particular fame for their fascination with astronomy and the stars. So, exposure to Hebrew culture and likely access to their holy scriptures are both good explanations for why they might have known about this unfolding prophecy. But that second question needs to be answered as well. Why would they care? Why would it matter to them? If this prophecy belonged to a different people, why did they concern themselves with this anticipated child? First, I think the most important answer to the question is because God drew them to it. They were players in a greater story that they had no way of knowing the scope of, of how, that, how far that story would reach. But God had determined to display his power over not just Israel, but all nations by drawing this group out of an eastern land to come forward and to glorify his, his son. That is how many of us become interested. Rather, that is how any of us become interested in the things of the very kingdom that we in our sin are determined to rebel against God has got to draw us to it. He is more than a light that allows us to see the truth. He is the light himself. And when he reveals the truth of himself to us, he dispels the darkness that formerly blinded us to the truth. Secondly, as likely students of the stars, the appearance of a new star in the heavens would have been of great relevance to their interest and their curiosities. Because stars were kind of their thing, to see a new star come and to know that it was tied to a Hebrew prophecy would have just stirred up great curiosity in their hearts. Third, we get the sense by their approach and attitude that these men had read more than just Numbers 24. They come not only to investigate this new light and not only to take notes on this potentially special child, they come to worship him, to give him the glory that he deserves. And so these men, no matter what their background is, very likely impacted by the testimonies of the prophets and the saints who had formed the ancient scriptures, have now seen the power of Yahweh and can testify that this God is great. He might not be the God they grew up with, but he's a God of power and his hand has shaped history. And so they want to come and worship this God. Fourth, it is completely possible that God gave them perhaps even a prophetic direction from an angel to come and to partake in this journey. Doesn't he speak in a similar angelic way to Mary and to Joseph, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, to the shepherds on the night of Christ's birth? This is kind of what's going on at the time of Christ's, Christ's birth. God is speaking in prophetic ways that he had not spoken hundreds of years. And we must not forget that these same wise men were told by God not to return the way they came by way 
of a, a vision that they received in a dream. So we have no reason to doubt that their interest in journey could have very well been directly influenced by the command and precept of Almighty God through angels. It is not out of the question that these are holdovers from the Israel exile and captivity. Perhaps they are Jews that had just lived there in that eastern land for many, many years. But there are strong thematic reasons to believe that they were in fact Gentiles and not themselves Jews. When they came into Jerusalem to inquire, they don't go directly to the temple. We also don't see them finding family members there in Jerusalem that they could house with. There's no indication that they were leaning on what would have been the common practice of the Hebrews to go to your countrymen and to lean on the scripture which told them that if you find a traveling Hebrew in your town and they don't have a place to stay, you're supposed to open up your doors and let them come and be with you. Rather, they began to ask around randomly, does anybody know anything about this prophecy to come? So perhaps these men truly were Gentiles who had heard from the word of God in a remote land, had been impressed by what they saw, and had come to worship this Jesus, this baby, who had been uh, shown to have manifested through this bright light that had come into the heavens. What a beautiful message this portrays of a far-reaching God. And Matthew is really huge on this theme. If you read through the entire Gospel of Matthew, you'll see again and again how Matthew, which is written largely to Jewish people, is intent on helping them to see that the grace of Jesus will not just fall on ethnic Judah, but will be expanded to all the nations of the earth. And the reason they came in the first place is that they had studied the words of ancient scripture. They saw the text that pointed forward, and when a sign appeared in the night sky that was otherwise unexplainable, they felt compelled to investigate. And their journey brings them to the holy city of Jerusalem where they inquire of its citizens if there was any awareness or news of this recently born king. And that buzz, that, that, that interest that becomes, becomes uh, stirred up by their inquiries begins to travel and it reaches the ears of King Herod. And when the king heard of these wise men had traveled a great distance to meet and honor a prophesied king of the Jews, he was suddenly quite concerned with Hebrew prophecy. If Jesus was going to be king... Would Herod be able to remain king? And is this concern not part of what makes the gospel a jarring challenge to the heart of men today? That Jesus does not come simply to save. He comes to save and to rule. He comes to be the king of our hearts and minds. He comes to establish order, his order, and to bring a people into a kingdom that he will govern forever. Sinful man doesn't want that kind of authority over them. Simple man wants, sinful man wants to be autonomous. If Jesus is here, then we can no longer be the king that we have pretended to be in his absence. In verse 2, Matthew says, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So as these wise men ask the Jewish people of that community about this one, there's almost an assumption here that these Jews would be familiar with the prophecy. This prophecy was recorded in their own scriptures. Surely they would have known of it. This prophecy told of the king that, that they lacked. Surely they would have been anticipating it. But more than just ignorance, we see that the wise men find opposition to the prophecy. 
Matthew 2 gives us a hint that perhaps the people were even opposed to the fulfillment of this ancient word that a king would come. In verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem was more happy to have relative peace than to think that a king might be coming that could bring war, that could bring unrest, that could bring division. J.V. Fesco, in a great little book called The Birth of Christ, The Biblical Significance of Christmas, points out regarding the wise men that though news of this prophecy was spreading in the city, and even the scribes and the priests had been made aware of it and had been consulted by the king for advice regarding this prophecy and its fulfillment, none of those other citizens went to go find the king. The wise men go by themselves. They hear, yes, there's affirmation that there is a prophecy. They hear that it's supposed to manifest itself in the city of Bethlehem, perhaps a detail that these wise men had overlooked. But none of the other citizens of Jerusalem go in tow with the wise men to find this newborn king. There is, at first, apprehension about the prophecy and then indifference towards it. The city of Babylon would have been roughly 18 days away from Bethlehem if they took that journey on foot and traveled 12 hours a day. These Gentiles had been stirred up to make the trip. They were determined not only to find this significant baby, but to worship him. And the Jews that they shared this information with would have only had to walk five miles to Bethlehem. And yet none went. When these wise men who did go made it to Bethlehem, they found the child. They did what they came to do. They fell down and they worshiped him. This is clearly evidence that they saw the prophecy about more than simply a king. They saw that this prophecy was about Emmanuel, God taking on flesh to dwell with us. Interestingly enough, if you study that whole scene where these wise men come to worship, this is not on the night of Jesus' birth. This is sometime after Jesus was born, so he's a, a young baby at the time. You don't see them falling down to worship Mary, do you? You see them falling down to worship Jesus, the one true king. And they bring gifts for this little one who would grow to be mighty in power. Psalm 72, 10 through 11 says, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now, this verse in Psalm might... Uh, in the Psalms might well be why we hear some Christian traditions referring to as these wise men as three kings. They brought the kinds of gifts that Psalm 72 insists kings from all nations must offer up to him. Gifts of reverence, gifts of, of respect and humility. And we are told of these three gifts that the first one was gold, which is constantly throughout the Bible associated with royalty, associated with those who have power. The best we have to give is gold, typically, in these ancient traditions. And, of course, Jesus was a king. He deserved gifts like gold. Frankincense, the second gift that was given, probably had something to do with the fact that Jesus was more than just a king, but was, in fact, going to operate as our last priest, the one priest that would act as mediator between God and men. Frankincense was typically sprinkled upon the coals of the altar, and uh, this 
This abstract from the, um, the bark of trees would then bring a, a beautiful aroma into the, the temple. And that, that sweet smell would be a gift to the Lord. And so this young Jesus would rule with a scepter, with power and might, but would also be able to offer priestly sacrifice up to the Lord God. And the third gift likely points to the work that Jesus would do when he became a mature man and fulfilled his earthly ministry. Myrrh was an element that was used in the embalming of bodies at that time. When they prepared a body for entombment, myrrh was associated with that process. And so this gift of myrrh is almost a dark foreshadowing of the suffering that Jesus would have to endure. But all of these gifts, appropriate to the character and the nature of what Jesus would grow to be. Did they realize the symbolism of the gifts that they gave? Perhaps they did not. But this is not really the wise men's story intrinsically, is it? This is the story that God is telling. God is telling this story about himself and about the redemption that he has brought from the very beginning to the very end. He who began it will accomplish it. And so whether they knew or not, God knew. And we now, with greater revelation, can look back and see the significance of those gifts offered unto the young Christ. The seeking of these wise men should teach us the weight of the Old Testament signposts. Do you trust the word of God as these men, who might not even have been Jewish, trusted it? They traveled at great expense to themselves. They brought costly gifts. They humbled themselves before this one who the word of God described as the final and greatest king. The star, no matter where they were, was leading them to one place, to the place where Jesus was at. They did not wait to go and meet this Jesus. They celebrated his birth as soon as they possibly could. So too the shepherds, when they heard from the angelic hosts that unto them a child had been born, they did not say, well, we're, we're going to have to get around to that. Let's make some plans. Let's clear our schedule. Maybe next week we can get there. Maybe we can do it when the season gets a little better for travel. No, they went immediately. Let us not delay in seeking the promised Savior. You have heard from Scripture that there is one who reigns on high. There is one who is seated at the right hand of the Lord God. And this Jesus is the king of the kingdom that he is establishing. We have spoken about how those who come near to Christ in faith become a part of that kingdom. Can you say that's true of you today? Can you say in light of the fact that Jesus, God who comes and takes on flesh, has been born into this world in a miraculous way and has fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill and has given his life as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the faithful and has risen on the third day showing his victorious power over death and sin. Can you say that you have trusted in that Savior? Is this just a king in history or is Christ your king, friends? If he is your king, then rejoice in that king. Give honor to him. Do not delay in seeking him out, but every day, desire to worship him and to give him the gift of a living sacrifice that is now yours to give because you've been given a new heart. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ no longer love the things of the flesh and the things of the world, but have been taught to love the things of eternity. And day by day, they're being sanctified further and further so that their lives might show a devotion and a reverence that counts Christ as the one and only King. Many people wonder, well, were these wise men saved? You know, some people say, well, maybe they weren't saved. We, we don't see any evidence of them being involved in the story of Christ from this day forward. We, we don't have any definitive word from the Lord that they were, they were believers. 
I, I think we've seen plenty of evidence here that there's good reason to believe that perhaps they were saved. The fact that they worshipped him, the fact that they respected the word of God, the fact that they came with humility and bowed down prostrate before the Lord God indicates that perhaps these were truly saved men. But the greater question, as uh, Joel Beakey, a great preacher that I respect a lot, challenges us in a sermon on this same passage. He says, we shouldn't be so concerned about the salvation of these wise men. We should ask the question, am I saved? Have I come to behold and to worship him? For many draw near to the Lord. They come around Christ. They come close to him without actually putting their faith in him. Some even bring gifts to him, hoping that will be enough to appease this king, not necessarily in pure honor to him, but because they hope to earn his favor or assuage his justice. But are they drawing near to Jesus himself? Are they desiring to be close to this one by whose blood we might be washed clean? Friends, this Christmas season, let us draw near to the Lord God. Let us not keep him far away. Let us not think that Jesus is something to worship one day soon but let us worship him now and let us worship him with a heart full of curiosity and wonder and excitement for what the Lord God is doing in and through him. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, we praise you and thank you for all that you are. We think about that wonderful scene that we sang about a few moments ago in Silent Night, Lord, that scene where heaven meets earth and your son Jesus Christ humbled himself and took on flesh when he entered into this world and we got to look upon perfection. Father, I praise you that you were willing to send the Son. Jesus, we are grateful that you were willing to make this sacrifice and come and be with us. And Spirit, we are so grateful that you are willing to tie us to God through your indwelling and through the seal that you provide. Help us, Lord God, to rejoice in this season and in every season that you sent the one that we needed and that this was the complete fulfillment of the plan that had been put in place even before the foundation of the world. God, we, we are grateful for you. We look forward to your return, Jesus. And in the meantime, let us be heralds of the good news that you are truly the king to come. Most of us here in this room are not Jewish by heritage. But Father, because of your great grace and mercy, even Gentiles like us can now become a part of that process, that promise. We can be grafted into this tree, the root of which is Israel. And so let us rejoice in our root. Let us think back to this history, which has become our history now that we are in Christ. And let us be thankful that the one who orders all of time and history is the one who cannot be overcome. Your will will truly be done. And we love you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.